0: I invite you to turn with me uh, one more time to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through the end of the chapter, verse 40. Um, We are continuing to work our way through 1 Corinthians uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're we're nearing the end. Um, For the last couple of years, we have... uh, looked at sections of 1 Corinthians 15 around Easter time, and we're going to continue that until we cover all of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So after today, I'm going to jump over chapter 15. We're not skipping it. Um, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 16, and uh, when we finish there, uh, Lord willing, the plan is to go to the Old Testament book of Micah and uh, do the same thing. Start in verse 1 and work our way through it with the Lord's help. But here in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is uh, wrapping up a discussion where he's been dealing with a series of problems related to public worship. Uh, The problems he he started to deal with all the way back in, in chapter 11 You remember he he dealt with the way that Corinthian men and women were distorting what it means to be male and female uh, with what they were doing in the context of worship. And we had that whole discussion surrounding head coverings and men wearing them and women not wearing them and the cultural significance of that and the wrong message that it communicated. He also dealt with uh, divisions along socioeconomic lines, this problem primarily being manifested at the Lord's table, where you had the, the rich and, and those of means going ahead and indulging, some even getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, uh, while the poor and those of lesser means were being marginalized and left out. That's chapter 11. Then in chapter 12, he turned to the problem of divisions when it came to the use of spiritual gifts in the context of of worship, and he, he used the metaphor of the body to remind them and remind us that we ought to be thankful for our unity. We are one body, and at the same time, we ought to be grateful for the, di- the diversity of gifts among the body, for there are many members and one body. And then in chapter uh, 13, we, we took a long look at the necessity and the character of love. Without Christ-like love, nothing else matters, right? You can have all the giftedness in the world, and without love, you are nothing, and you gain nothing. And then in chapter 14, Paul dealt with two particular spiritual gifts that were of interest in the church of Corinth, and we took a look at those, the gifts of prophecy and tongues. And now, at the End of chapter 14, uh, Paul ties up some loose ends in the whole discussion about public worship. And he gives us here, I think, three guiding principles uh, for how the church ought to worship together. I'm going to give them to you now so you can be on the lookout for them as we read. And then we'll unpack them uh, this morning. So the first principle is the principle of edification, building one another up. The second principle is the principle of order. All things must be done decently and in good order. Presbyterians love that verse, don't they? Okay, so you've got the first uh, principle of edification, second principle of order, and the third principle of authority. Our worship, as the whole of our Christian lives uh, are to be, they're to be submitted to and governed by the authority of Christ himself speaking, through the scriptures. And so the principle of edification, building one another up, the principle of order, all things are to be done decently and in good order, and the principle of authority, things are to be done in obedience to the word of God. Uh, So let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word, but first let's pause and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that we would hear the voice of the Lord Jesus himself speaking to us in and through the scriptures and that the ministry of your word would be accompanied by the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit wielding the word in power in our minds, in our hearts, so that our minds are transformed and faith is wrought and faith is um, strengthened in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do this Um, For his sake. Amen. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 26. Paul asks, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently, and in order. Uh, When I was a student at uh, Geneva College, uh, students are there required to take a number of humanities courses. And one of those humanities courses uh, takes a long look at art in the Western world, the history of art in the Western tradition. And so we would take a look at different art pieces and discuss um, them as expressions of uh, the artist or the times in which the artist lived. Uh, and we, we, one of the things we looked at were 20th century abstract expression pieces. Um, pieces by uh, folks like Jackson Pollock, Did say you say his last name if I'm remembering correctly, Jackson Pollock. If you've seen any of his pieces, what he did is he he took these large canvases and he did his utmost to avoid any sense of order or rationality. And he would just take paint and fling it onto the canvas in order to express his sense of the chaos of life or the chaos of culture. I was reminded of that while I was reading 1 Corinthians 14 and study for today, because I think if, if you wanted a painting to represent what Corinthian worship looked like, it would probably look a lot like one of Pollock's pieces. Their worship services were were random and chaotic and disorderly. They were noisy and wild, multiple people prophesying at once, speaking over one another. Uh, There were sudden outbursts of people speaking in tongues, sometimes without an interpreter present. And when they had the Lord's Supper, the rich indulged and the, the poor were punted to the margins. The riffraff were kept in their place. But here's the thing. The Corinthians loved it. They loved it they actually thought the disorderliness of their worship was a sure sign and evidence of just how spiritual they were. They thought themselves, you remember, to be the pneumaticoi, the spiritual ones, and they took a sure sign of their spirituality, their spontaneity, and their disorder in worship. Many in the Corinthian church were were boasting in what they were doing, their way of doing things, taking pride in their their personal giftedness. And you might remember last time Paul rebuked them as a father saying, don't be childish in your thinking. It's time to grow up, Corinthians. And here he gives them some fundamental principles that ought to shape how Christians worship together on every Lord's Day. So I want to take a look at these principles and work through them one by one. Remember, the first principle is the principle of edification. Now, we've seen this back in chapter 12. We've seen it before, uh, earlier in chapter 14. And here he is stating it again. So it must be really, really important in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And then here it is. Let all things be done For building up. That's the principle of edification in a nutshell. Let all things be done for building up. Well, let's let's stop here just for a minute and recognize that there there are traditions in the wider church that have really latched on to verse 26 in order to develop an entire approach to corporate worship. People will say, things like look the way the way that you guys worship at Trinity is not new testament worship it's not the way new testament christians worshiped when they gathered together new testament worship it's it's free form and anyone can speak and anyone can say anything and everyone can bring their contributions as the spirit moves them or i guess the vernacular today as the lord lays something upon their hearts that's new testament worship. And you know there are churches that, that have taken verse 26 as the guide for how new testament worship ought to look. So for example, if you were to attend a, a Quaker assembly, right? They sought to follow 1 Corinthians 14 verse 26 as a vision for what worship ought to look like. And so everybody would sit in silence until someone was moved to speak, to, to sing a hymn or to speak a revelation or to say a prayer or to share some word that they uh, uh, received. Or if you were to attend a, a Plymouth Brethren service, they have no pastor and people just bring contributions as they feel led. What do you make of that? What, what should we make of that? I think we should say that it's it's always an unwise practice to take one verse and to try to develop a biblical understanding of anything from it, right? We need the teaching of what the whole Bible says about worship, including the Old Testament. We know, for example, that early Christians shaped their worship services based on patterns that you would have seen in local synagogues. I mentioned this verse earlier in Sunday school, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We're told that when the early church gathered for worship on the first day of the week, there were a number of these basic elements that always appeared. They, they devoted themselves, the language there is of devotion is wholehearted commitment to, dogged commitment to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and the prayers. And we also know from New Testament evidence, we have fragments, I think, of hymns and early creedal statements that there are things Paul quotes that were familiar to the churches, things the churches sang and confessed when they were together. And so there's this fundamental basic pattern of synagogue-like worship where you had the ministry of the word, the reading and exposition of scripture. You had corporate prayer. You had Singing, the singing, as Paul says, of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That was normative. Those were the fundamental things. But then in the early church, alongside of these fundamental elements, you had these charismatic gifts. Remember, as we've talked about these past few weeks, the apostles are still living. The New Testament is still being written. Most of these churches more than likely only had access to a single letter uh, or a small corpus of Paul's writings or John's writings or Peter's writings or even just a a fragment of one of those letters. Maybe they only had parts of a gospel or one gospel. We have to try to put ourselves in this world because it's so foreign to us. And during this time, God was still giving new revelation to the church through the apostles and the prophets. And so there needed to be a place in the liturgy, in the order of worship for those with new revelation to speak. But what was happening at Corinth, it seems, is that the basic pattern, the basic elements of New Testament worship, where the teaching of the word of God is front and center to everything, was being pushed aside. It was being marginalized. You might even say eclipsed by this more charismatic element. And it was creating real problems. There were people using their gifts for the public display of their prowess, their giftedness, making much of themselves. And at the same time, clarity and truth were being obscured. People, as a result, were struggling to to grow and to mature. So there was a crisis of discipleship in the church of Corinth. And so Paul says, even if in your services there are lots of people, and we know that the Corinthians were incredibly gifted, even if there are lots of people with spiritual gifts, um, and they're all wanting to speak, Paul's saying to them that doesn't mean that worship should just descend into a free-for-all. He says, no, let all things be done for building up. This is the first controlling principle, the principle of Edification. Now, what did that principle mean concretely for the Corinthians? Paul spells it out for them. He spells it out for them in verse 31. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. We talked about prophecy a couple weeks ago. Remember, prophecy is authoritative revelation originating from God. But it won't do God's people any good if they aren't even able to hear it. (laughs) And if it's not being discerned, whether it's true prophecy or false prophecy. And so Paul wants the Corinthians, here's his driving concern here, on the basis of this principle of edification, he wants the Corinthians to hear what God is saying so that the people can learn and be built up and be encouraged. That's his driving concern here. And we learn from this that the way to build up the church is to teach the truth of the word of God so that all may learn and be built up and be encouraged. I think Paul's concern here is a really helpful reminder for us in our our day. What, What is his concern for the Corinthians? Not that they have an emotional experience, not that they simply get to express themselves, not that they be entertained His chief and primary concern for them is for their edification, for their being built up mutual encouragement as they learn the truth of the gospel, the mystery of Jesus Christ and what it means for their lives. That's principle number one, the principle of edification. The second principle is the principle of order. Take a look at verse 40. Verse 40, summarize it summarizes it for us. Let all things be done decently and in order. And Paul's discussion from verse 26, 27 through verse 35 really unpacks what he means by this principle. Here's what he means in a nutshell. In Corinth, there were three groups of individuals who were speaking in the context of the gathered assembly of the saints, Three groups of people who were speaking when they should have been silent. And Paul links all of these groups together by using identical vocabulary. All right, so let's, let's work, work through these three groups. The first group is tongue speakers in verse 27. Many of them had the gift of tongues in Corinth, but a bunch of them were speaking in tongues at the same time. And Paul basically says to them, stop that, guys. <laughs> implement some order, have two or three at most, presumably so there's time for other aspects of of worship. And if there is uh, an interpreter, then have each one speak in turn so that, again, everyone can be built up. But if there is no one to interpret, verse 28, they should keep silent in the church and pray to God. That's group number one. Group number two, prophets. And the same rule is being applied to them in, in verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak and let others weigh what is said. Remember, we've talked about this a couple of times now, how Paul links together the gift of tongues with the necessity of interpretation. And Paul also links together the gift of prophecy with discernment. There are those in the church who need to discern whether the prophecy is from God or not, whether it's true or false prophecy. And remember that at this time, new revelation is being given to the church. The, the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets is still being laid. God was speaking through his prophets to the church, and therefore, it was vital for the church to have a place for the prophetic ministry. But just like tongues had to be accompanied by interpretation, Prophecy had to be accompanied by discernment. By those gifted to discern between true and false prophecy. Because in this time, there was always a danger of false prophecy. And you know those claiming to speak a prophetic word, they had to be carefully judged in the light of everything God had already revealed in the sacred writings, in the scriptures. Otherwise, what would happen? Well, so-called prophets could exercise a terrible tyranny over the people of God with all kinds of crazy ideas, passing it off as the authoritative word of the Lord. And sadly, this kind of thing happens a lot today. You know, some, well, I won't mince words, some charlatan comes along with a a big personality and the gift of gab, and uh, speaks his mind, saying it's a word from the Lord, and leads people astray. It's kind of things happening with incredible frequency today. And so Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand prophecy had to be spoken in order so that others could discern whether it was from the Lord, so that the church could be built up by that Revelation. But again, in Corinth, in verse 30, it looks like prophets were competing for airtime and attention, speaking over each other, interrupting, speaking uh, over and, and uh, above one another. And so instead of discernment and edification, there was, there was disruption and uh, misunderstanding. And once again, Paul, he basically says to them, stop that. Stop, stop what you're doing. When one speaks, the others need to be silent. And so verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And then just notice in passing, Paul says something that I think is, is really important to notice. If you take a look at the end of verse 32, he says, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, what on earth does he mean there? What's that phrase mean? There is a very common idea today that the spiritual gifts in the New Testament, the miraculous gifts, were static utterances that were beyond the control of the speaker, right? Something that would just take over a person so you, you can't help yourself and you just erupt in speech, whether it be in tongues or prophecy. Just ask yourself, does that fit with what Paul is saying, telling tongue speakers and prophesiers, hey, you guys need to wait your turn. No, it doesn't, does it? But it's it's likely how the Corinthians were thinking, and it's how many in the charismatic church think today. But Paul reminds them the spirits of prophets are subject, the word there is the Greek word for submission, submission, they are subject to the prophets themselves. In other words, Paul is saying, stop acting like spirituality means a free for all and freedom of expression. He's saying, exercise self control because that actually is evidence of the Spirit. It is one of the fruit of the Spirit. But notice the rationale he gives here in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Uh, that word for confusion in the Greek, it carries the idea of chaotic and disorderly. See, confusion, disorder, and chaos, dear friends, is never ever the result of biblical spirituality and fidelity to the scriptures. Pieces. So that's what the word of God creates in our lives it's it's what the gospel does for you you have peace with God and peace from God that will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ and it's what it will do in the life of a church it will take a group of people who have no earthly reason to be together to dwell together in unity and harmony and that will be reflected in the worship of the church Um, When we gather together, according to God's word, the word of God generates peace when it has its way. That's what Paul is saying here. Let's go to this third group. And as you can imagine, we need to spend a little bit more time on this one. Um, I was talking in Sunday school how preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse doesn't allow you to skip over difficult passages. So here you go. Here's an example. Paul addresses this third group in verses 33 through 35. Uh, Women in the church, look at what he says. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak in church but should be in submission as the law also says. Let me just stop there and make a comment. As the law also says. Now, if you're thinking, okay, that's Old Testament, that's right, but if you're looking chapter and verse for this, you're not gonna find it. Um, What is Paul referring to? I I think he has in mind here the creation narrative of Adam first, Eve second. We'll come back to that here in just a minute, but keep that in mind. He says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husband at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, that's bound to raise some eyebrows and raise some questions. And with all of the misconceptions that are out there about what the Bible says, does and does not teach about gender and gender roles, it would be really easy for people, I think, to jump to the wrong conclusion about what Paul is actually saying. So let's try to do this in three steps, okay? Um, what Paul isn't saying, what Paul is saying, and why. In other words, what is the theological rationale behind the what? And that's, let's, let's try to do this. So first, what Paul isn't saying. He is not saying that men are superior and women inferior and therefore men ought to do the talking. He is not saying that men are more rational or smart or more objective and women more emotional and gullible and therefore women need to be quiet and men need to do the speaking. He's not saying that. He is not trying to defend and uphold a worldly notion of patriarchy nor is he saying we need to recognize that women are supposed to be altogether silent in the assembly of the church. You might remember just a few chapters ago, he spoke about women praying and prophesying in the context of the gathered assembly. And the issue there wasn't that they were praying or prophesying, it was that they were doing it without a head covering and the the wrong message that that sent to outsiders. Okay, so we have to recognize that There were women in the New Testament church gifted to prophesy, and there was supposed to be a place for them to exercise that gift. So what is Paul saying here? Well, similar, again, notice how Paul links all of these groups together. You have three different groups of people who are speaking out of turn when they should have been silent. Paul links them all together. So surrounding tongues and prophecy... The women are speaking out of turn and they are further adding to the disorderliness of Corinthian worship. Uh, Maybe some of them were interrogating the prophets. So somebody would have spoke a prophetic word and one of the women in the church would have spoken up in opposition and challenged the authority of the prophet. And it even appears, I think, I think this is the primary concern that some of the women were asserting themselves into the ministry of the word in the context of worship. So I think Paul's concern here has to do with the authoritative teaching of the word of God in the context of public worship. One of the reasons I think that uh, is because another Pauline passage, which I think sheds light on this, this concern, parallels what Paul is saying. Again, this is passage dealing with corporate worship and in 1st Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 listen to what Paul writes there let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain quiet and then notice where he grounds all of this for Adam was formed first then Eve okay so Both passages cannot be merely a cultural passing concern, an occasional concern, because Paul grounds this in created order. So reading these two passages together, this is what I think Paul is saying. In corporate worship, God calls some men to minister the word of God to the people of God. And in both of these passages, Paul is reminding women in the church that they're, they're not called to the authoritative ministry of the word. They're not called to office in the church. Women instead, in this context, should, should have listening, learning, submissive hearts. And in 1 Timothy 2, Paul grounds this in the order of creation, God making man first, woman second. Okay, so that's the what. Those are the basic details. Now Why? Why? Or is this just just random? Is there no meaning to it whatsoever? I don't think so. I think there's a theological rationale for it that we often miss. Here's the thing. In certain contexts and relationships, the roles of men and women are ordered by God to figure or represent or to picture the relational dynamic between Christ and, and the church. Now, I think most of us here can immediately think of an example of this without it, without it rubbing us the wrong way too much. We understand this with respect to Christian marriage, don't we? The relationship between a husband and a wife. What is the husband uniquely called to do in the marriage relationship? To love his wife as Christ loved the church. It's our calling, brothers, so that to some real degree, as we lay down our lives in service for our brides, that the love of Jesus Christ would be reflected in our lives. And what is the unique calling given to Christian wives? It is voluntary submission to their husbands who are called to sacrificially lay down their lives for their wives. And in this relational dynamic, the eternally fruitful relationship between Jesus and his bride is being pictured. I think the same thing, and this is what we're probably less familiar with, the same thing is happening in the context of the worship of the church. God has ordered gender roles to represent the relational dynamic between Christ and the church, but here in a different way than marriage. So when men and women... Fulfill their roles in worship. The relational dynamic between Christ and the church is imaged. Christ proclaims his word to the church by the ministry of men. And how does the church respond to that word? In humble submission, receiving the word in meekness. Now keep in mind that the church Throughout Scripture, in both both Old Testament and New Testament, is always a feminine figure. Represented in figures like Eve and Lady Jerusalem and in the church, that was the bride of Christ. She's always feminine. And so Paul's teaching, far from being grounded, I think, in a cultural patriarchy, is in fact grounded in a theological reality The eternally fruitful relationship between Christ who declares his word to his people and the church who in submission receives that word and brings fullness to that word by living it out and thus fulfilling her identity as his crowning glory. Now that should sound a little familiar to you. If you remember our study in 1 Corinthians 11, when we spoke about man as the image of God and woman as the glory of man. You see, ordered in this way, woman's role in worship figures, demonstrates the entire church's response to the authoritative word of King Jesus. I was, I was really tempted to just do a whole sermon on this, but you guys might be getting sick of me talking about gender. So if you want to think through this some more, Go back and listen to our Sunday school series on on gender. Go back and listen to 1 Corinthians 11. For today, all, all we can say is that gender roles in worship are not baseless, not meaningless, but theologically weighty, theologically significant. They are ordered by God to figure Christ's nurture and the church's response to the ministry of the word. There is a gendered order that points us to this relational dynamic between Christ and his people. And so in Paul's instruction here, let's let's not get so distracted by contemporary concerns for equality, right? And in the modern sense, equality must mean sameness. That's not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is that men and women are equal, As image bearers of God, men and women bear equal dignity before God. But as equals, God calls them in certain contexts and in certain relationships to different roles to point to theological realities. And we see that in the context of marriage and we see it again here in the context of the worship of the church. Okay, so don't miss the the theological reality which really carries a lesson for us all. Because in Paul's teaching to women, being humble listeners, we are actually all meant to learn about the church. In other words, all of us, how we are to receive the ministry of the word of God in our lives. We are to be humble, submissive learners, placing ourselves under the ministry of the word of Christ in our lives. We're to listen to the word with teachable hearts and submit to its authority. And that leads to the third and final principle, which we'll deal with quickly here, the principle of authority. Here we're looking at verses 36 through 39. And again, the, the, the Corinthians, they thought they were really special, right? They thought that their way of worship was best and was a sign of just how spiritual they were. And Paul confronts them about this in verse 36 asking them, was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it's reached? Because of their giftedness, some of them thought that they were basically an authority unto themselves. Basically, the message from Corinth was, we know better because nobody has the insights that we do. Now, I'll just tell you by pastoral experience that that sentiment is alive and well in our day. I've had conversations with people who personally believe God has spoken to them, and even when Scripture objectively opposes how they are thinking or how they are living, their response to that confrontation is, It doesn't matter what you say, God speaks to me. End of story. Well, to that kind of thinking, Paul says, Don't be daft. That's what he says. You you don't know better than God. The the really spiritual folks, verse 37, will recognize what Paul says as an apostle is the very command of God. And so he's saying, submit to the command of God communicated to you in the apostolic scriptures. Friends, that's, that's our rule. That's a mark of true biblical spirituality, submission to authority. It's not innovation, it's not spontaneity, it's obedience. And please notice the warning of verse 38, okay? Here's what's at stake. Here's why this matters so much. It's, It's not merely that Paul is just annoyed with the messiness of Corinthian worship. There's a burden on his heart. He's upset because he knows that a refusal to submit to God himself speaking in his word... A persistent and obstinate refusal to recognize the authority of apostolic scripture and to bend to that authority will not merely produce chaos in church on Sundays. But it will lead to, if it's, if it's a life-defining pattern, obstinate refusal to submit to the authority of God, God's word, it will result ultimately in not being recognized. Not merely not being recognized in the church, but if as a persistent life pattern of refusing to submit to the authority of God speaking in his word, it will result in not being recognized by the Lord Jesus himself. Those who thought themselves to be very spiritual may find themselves standing before the Lord one day, hearing the words, get away from me, I don't know you. That's a check, I think. It's a sobering reality. And this is the burden on Paul's heart. He wants the Corinthians and God wants us to be a people tethered to the word, people under the rule of Christ. That is how we will be edified. It's how we will be built up. It's how we will know real peace in our lives and in our church and in our worship when we submit to God's authority. And so, friends, here are three principles that we need as much as ever in the church today. The principle of edification. We're to seek to build one another up and be encouraged and encourage one another by learning and being in the scriptures. Secondly, the principle of order. We're to seek appropriate order in worship so that the church is built up and so that the purposes of God are realized in our midst. And thirdly, the principle of authority, embracing and bending the knee to the rule of King Jesus as he exercises it over us by his word and by his spirit. Friends, I think if we commit, let's use the the language of Acts 2, if we devote ourselves to these principles, uh, the church will be edified. God's people will be encouraged and built up, and God will be glorified. So may the Lord, in his grace, make it so among us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, please take this word and hide it away in our hearts and shape us and conform us to it, all for Jesus' sake. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.